Please open or click, as the case may be, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 1194, Hebrews 10, 26. We arrived this morning at the fifth and penultimate sermon from Hebrews 10. We have considered the great sacrifice of Christ upon which all the rest of the chapter is based. And we have seen how that sacrifice uh, made us perfect for all time, even as we are undergoing sanctification. We saw that we are regarded as perfect because we are united to Christ and the Lord's table, and how the Lord's table demonstrates that union, that communion, making us partakers of the bread of affliction along with Last week, the author gave us his summary, as it were, of what it means to be Christian, drawing near to God, holding fast to our confession of historical facts, and stirring one another up to church and to good works. Today, we tackle a darker and a more difficult topic. And yet, without it, nothing about Christianity makes any sense. Without this subject today in this passage, there is simply no need for a sacrifice, no need for salvation, and no need for the Christ. That this paragraph is the underlying causation, the purpose behind all that Christ has done and our author has conveyed, is actually seen in the very first word. Look with me at verse 26 before we begin to read. It begins with the word for. For indicates purpose or causation. I'm going to the store for milk. Milk is the reason. It's the cause behind my trip to the store. So in verse verse 26, what is the for for? Why is it here? Why is Christ the great sacrifice? Why do we need to be perfected in him? Why do we need to be united to him through the breaking of bread? Why are we called to draw near to God, to hold fast our confession, and to stir one another up? Verses 26 through 31 will answer those questions. It will give the reason for those things. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice, so that if you want to know the real reason for Christ, then you must know God's inerrant, authoritative word. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Spirit of grace, 
bestow on us a measure of that grace this morning, that we might hear the message of this text, that we might heed the warning that is found here, and that we might know the joy of living in Christ Jesus, even as we give our hearts and minds over to a proper fear of you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hell is eternity in the presence of God. That's not a misquote. Let me say that again. Hell is eternity in the presence of God. Heaven is eternity in the presence of God with a mediator. The mediation of Christ has been the theme of the book of Hebrews for much of the last several chapters. And in this paragraph, he looks briefly but powerfully at the alternative, at facing God apart from that mediator. Hell is eternity in the presence of God. Let me see if I can illustrate the point. I was in the third grade, and I was walking home from school. I had my report card in hand, and I was sick, quite literally sick, with fear. Why? Well, had you asked me at the time in third grade, I would have said it was because I had a D in spelling. But is that really cause enough for fear? On its own, is a D reason to be afraid? Is that letter of the alphabet especially frightful? Sure, there are scary numbers. After all, seven, eight, nine. But why would I fear the letter D? Technically, I wasn't fearful just because I had a D. And to my point, other kids in class, they had Ds and they weren't particularly afraid. So what really drove my fear? A second childhood story. This one I don't recall from memory, but it's been told to me by my aunt. My mother's younger sister was at our house putting me to bed. I was around five, which make my aunt about 15. And as the story goes, I insisted to my young aunt that I could not go to bed yet. And I wasn't being belligerent. My reason was this that at the store that day, I had misbehaved. And my mother had said that when we got home, I was going to get a spanking. And I had not gotten that spanking. Now, some of you are thinking to yourselves, he's not that bright. But here's the situation. I wanted the spanking because my parents had a reputation of following through on their warnings. So I was going to get spanked, and I didn't want to have to wait till tomorrow morning to get the spanking. I'd much rather have it right now. So I insisted to my aunt that she go get my mother. And sure enough, as my aunt finishes the story, my mom came up and spanked me and put me to bed. Do you see how those two stories are related? Do you see that the first is rooted in the second? My third grade fear was rooted in my five-year-old experience. Technically speaking, I wasn't afraid because I had a D. No, my fear arose from my knowledge of an experience with my parents. The D caused fear because of my parents. They had set certain expectations and requirements, and they had a track record of following through with punishment. I had transgressed the standard, and I knew 
the consequences. Is that not exactly the point of verses 26 and 27? There is a sin which if we were to continue therein, all that would await us would be fearful judgment and a fury of fire. In a word, hell. Without the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, we face going home to eternity with our life's report card full of C's, D's, and E's and having to face the Father's wrath toward our failures. Hell is eternity with God. There are two aspects of this passage which we've got to properly understand if we're going to grasp our preacher's message and meaning. There is the question of what is the transgression in view? What is the sin he's talking about? And there is the question of the nature of the trouble which awaits such a sinner. To frame this according to my third grade self, what grade is unacceptably low? And in other words, what is the sin? And what consequences await such a sinner? Is it a grounding? Is it a spanking? What is it that's going to happen under these circumstances? I struggled all week to decide which to tackle first, but I also realized they are totally intertwined, and so we really do have three points to this sermon. We're going to look, first of all, at what is the offense in view in Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. Secondly, we're going to consider what is the punishment in view. And thirdly, how do these two things interrelate to each other in the passage? What is the reason our author brings them both up? What offense are we warned against? What punishment are we warned about? And how do those things relate? So first off, the offense. The nature of the offense in view might escape our notice if we are not careful. Isolated as it is in the way that I read it, the text would appear to suggest that any continuous ongoing sin brings the consequences warned. For if we go on sinning deliberately. Based only on that, many have imagined that this passage is speaking of any besetting sin, any sin into which we might continuously and repeatedly fall, triggers the warnings and consequences of the passage. That is, at first glance, an understandable interpretation. And yet I think that if we step back just a little, we'll begin to see a very different picture. In fact, we begin to see that new understanding as soon as we consider last week's sermon. Verses 22, 23, and 24, just above this. What do they say? Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us not forsake the church, but by being together, stir one another up to love and good works. Those are the most recent commands in the context. And so it can be argued that those are the sins in view. In other words, the offense we are warned against is continually violating those commands. To pull back from God rather than drawing near. To let go our confession rather than holding fast. And to turn away from the church. That is the sin in view. And that is historically known as apostasy. Turning fully and finally away from the faith. So not only does this view fit better uh, into chapter 10, it fits better into all of the book of Hebrews. Almost every Sunday, I have reminded us that our author writes with the purpose of deterring Jewish Christians 
from, uh, from going back to Judaism. They are tempted to abandon Christ and return to their former Judaism. Pressured by friends and family, missing the, the rituals, uh, many of these first century Christian Jews were seriously tempted to apostatize, apostatize leaving the church and returning to the synagogue. The whole of Hebrews is written to deter such a deadly sin, and I am convinced that this fits perfectly into that. Now, to be sure, our author is not a proponent of a purposefully sinful lifestyle. He will have more to say on that matter in chapters 12 and 13. But for now, when he says, go on sinning deliberately, he is speaking of those who have turned away from Christianity, who no longer hold fast our confession. The sin in view in Hebrews 10 is apostasy. So what then is the punishment which is in view? I bet the author blends his discussion of the offense and the punishment, and we're going to see now how that plays out. I'm going to skip verse 27 for a moment. We'll circle back around to it later. For now, look with me at verses 28 and 29, and let's see if we can come to grips with what he is saying. 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? It has been our author's practice throughout the book of Hebrews to compare Christianity to Judaism. And that pattern holds here. He points to the law of Moses in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The most severe human punishment possible is death. I mean, what more can justice do to a man? Sure, watching my loved one suffer might be a fate worse than death, but that wouldn't be justice. It would be unjust. The worst fate that justice can deliver is death. And the Mosaic law allowed for, even required, that for certain well-documented crimes, those beyond doubt, that death was to be administered. That's the background his Jewish audience would understand, and it's one that I think we can understand as well. But then consider the language of verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved? Our author could not be much clearer. clearer. Brothers and sisters, there is a fate worse than death. If death was meted out under earthly law, don't you imagine that divine law, heavenly law, the final law, has in store a punishment even worse than that? It is hell. Elsewhere, the Bible calls it the second death. It is an eternity, living with the consequences of having transgressed the Father's standard and having spurned his loving offer of reconciliation in Christ Jesus. The doctrine of annihilationism is unsupported by the Bible. There is an afterlife for both the redeemed and the reprobate. And what awaits the apostate is a most fearful eternity. And to magnify the severity of the awaiting punishment, he emphasizes the grotesque nature of the offense. 
Why? Well, the one who walks away from Christ and Christianity, who gives up meeting together, who avoids being stirred up to love and good works, that person is trampling underfoot the Son of God. Now, when a football player, in his anger, in the heat of the moment, when he climbs out of that pile of bodies and he intentionally steps on one of his opponents, it is a serious offense and it is punished severely. But those guys are wearing protective gear and they're on a nice, clean grass field. In the ancient world of our author, the streets were not that way. The streets were full of animal dung left by the donkeys which pulled merchants' carts and the horses which carried travelers. Those streets had the garbage housewives tossed out the kitchen window. Those streets would, on some occasions and in some places, even have the contents of emptied chamber pots. When the book of Hebrews was written, to trample someone underfoot was to stomp them into the mud, the urine-soaked, feces-filled, garbage-strewn mud. His point? Well, if certain crimes under Mosaic law warranted death, what do you think awaits the one who treats God's own son in that manner? If God's anger came down on Adam for eating a piece of fruit, what do you imagine he has in store for the one who treats his son this way? His illustration of the sin serves to magnify the intensity of the punishment. Hell is serious because trampling Christ underfoot is serious. By the way, when we compare a bad day at the office to eternal damnation, I had one hell of a day. We undercut the severity of God's righteous anger. And so we undercut the need of a savior. Find another way to express how bad things were. Hell is horribly serious because spurning Christ is horribly serious. Our author offers two additional comments to help us understand the severity of the sin in view and the penalty which awaits it. He says, the one who apostatizes has profaned the blood of the covenant. To profane something is to treat it with disregard, to treat that which has been set aside for special purpose with disregard. Years ago, our family was standing in the beautiful white marble World War II memorial in D.C. Here, chiseled in stone, enshrined in marble, were the powerful words of great historic leaders, the memory of the hundreds of thousands of Americans who gave their lives, and the weight of the sacrifice which the whole nation made to stop a madman. I was, like almost all around me, subdued, humbled, reverent, until a man let his dog relieve herself on the memorial. There was grass just a few steps away, but he allowed her to urinate on the marble. He profaned the memorial. Our author says that to ignore the blood of Christ is to do just that to God's own son. Now, do you imagine that God will let that go without consequence? Of course not. That that answer is patently obvious is exactly why our author brings up the point. We are talking about those who trample the Son of God and who profane his sacrifice, and thus we are talking about a most profound and serious consequential punishment. 
the, author, the author's third and final comment about the severity of the sin in view might pass unnoticed, but it shouldn't. I have often said that, much like his daughter, if you cannot get along with my father-in-law, um, the problem is you. I'm not saying you're going to be best friends with Dad Healy, but he is about as laid back, relaxed, and easygoing as they come. If you cannot live at peace with that man, you're the problem. Have you ever considered the personality of the third person of the Trinity? He's the life giver, breathing life into Adam, breathing life into dead sinners. He awakens hearts, convinces of sin, and makes known the Savior. He is the spiritual gift giver. He's the indweller. He's the comforter. And any time the Bible speaks of judgment and condemnation, it usually references the Father, sometimes the Son, but I cannot think of a single example where the Spirit is ever referenced in regard to judgment. To drive that point home here, our author calls him the Spirit of grace. And yet, the apostate has outraged the Spirit of grace. Just as Jesus says that spurning his sacrifice is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, so our author says that the apostate outrages the spirit of grace. And if grace is outraged at you, what penalty, what consequence must await you? The answer is obviously hell. Just as our author spoke indirectly of the Lord's table, so he does not name hell, but he certainly invokes it. He warns of God's vengeance in verse 30. And across all the pages of the scripture, what is the vengeance of God except damnation? In verse 27, he warns of fearful expectation of judgment. Jesus himself, in his parable of the sheep and the goats, a parable of judgment, directly connects that judgment of the goats with hell. When he says, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God's vengeance in verse 30 and the fearful expectation of judgment in 27 are justification enough to conclude that hell is in view here. But he gets more explicit when he speaks of a fury of fire, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It would be nearly impossible to make the case that hell is not in our author's mind. The offense in Hebrews 10 is apostasy, turning away from the Christian faith. The penalty in Hebrews 10 is hell, eternal fiery torment at the hands of a vengeful God. What then is the way he brings these together? How is it that they're intertwined? What's the relationship of these two things? Well, it's in the way he opens and closes this section. Remember, I said we were going to skip verse 27. Now we go back to it. What is the key word in 27 that appears again in 31? Look at 27, and then look at 31. 27. What is there for the one who turns from Christ? A fearful expectation of judgment. And down in verse 31, what does he warn of there? It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. His whole argument in this passage turns on the idea of fear. A fearful expectation of judgment 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fear is at the heart of our author's message. He is reminding Jewish Christians, those steeped in the Old Testament, of the fear of the Lord. Why? Because at least some in his original audience are on the verge of doing the most foolish thing imaginable, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to deter foolishness, impart wisdom. And where does wisdom begin? With the fear of the Lord. It is his hope that at least a few in his audience fear the Lord and will be deterred from the foolishness of apostasy. And that raises the question of the nature of the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? It is most often described in churches and Christian writing as reverent awe. But I ask you, is reverent awe an effective deterrent? I am in awe of Niagara Falls. I can and have stood at its edges for hours and just marveled at its majesty. I am in awe of Niagara Falls and the God who created them. It is truly awesome. But does my awe keep me from jumping over the edge? Why haven't more people attempted a ride over the falls? Awe? I don't think so. Fear. That's what keeps us from doing foolish things. And that's what our author is conjuring up in his readers' minds. Fear. I know this view of the fear of the Lord is going to be a little unsettling for some of us. But stick with me and hear this out. The fear of the Lord is fear. Note how in verse 30 he says, We know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. We know him. Our author is leaning on his Jewish audience's knowledge of the Old Testament. They would understand his intent in light of it. We must do the same. Thus the following are all scripture quotes. Too many for you to go look them up individually, but listen as I read the following scriptures to you. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I hid because I was afraid. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? But Sarah said, I did not laugh because she was afraid. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. Then Gideon perceived that he, uh, the man he was talking to, was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Gideon wasn't in reverent awe, he was afraid he was a dead man. Uzzah put out his, I'm quoting again, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark. 
for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down. And David, that's King David, and David was afraid of God that day. And behold, the Lord passed by Elijah, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. A little side note, therefore Elijah was unaffected, and he kept standing right where he was. Back to the quote. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and ran out of there. Finally, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. Not one of those examples approaches anything akin to reverent awe. These men and the one woman were scared. They were afraid. In the words of our author, they were fearful. Full stop, end of discussion. And it is precisely that same fear which our author invokes to keep his charges from making the fatal mistake of abandoning the Christian faith. Reverent awe should inspire our worship, but the fear of the Lord deters us from the ultimate and final foolishness of apostasy. So where does that leave us? Are we to cower before God, afraid of him? Should we live in constant terror of the Lord of hosts? No and yes. Our author's argument does not lend itself to an easy answer, but it is an important one. He is seeking to drum up fear in the hearts and minds of believers. Hebrews, like all of the New Testament, was written for and to the church, for and to believers. Christians are the audience. And he wants those Christians, because the Spirit preserved it, we know the Christians here today as well, He wants them to be afraid of God if they apostatize. Do not imagine that God is some congenial old man, some friendly grandfatherly type, who will simply overlook any misstep and accept you uh, uh, any old way you come to him. Buddhism? Well, were you sincere in your Buddhism? Okay, great, come on into my heaven. Agnostic do-gooderism, never quite sure if there was a God, but you hedged your bets by doing some good things. Fair enough, come on into my heaven. That is not the true God. There is but one way to him, and that is through Jesus Christ. You trample him underfoot, you profane his blood, you continue in sin by ignoring Christ's bride, and the full wrath of God awaits you. And that is the fear we are to have. That is a fear which keeps us out of trouble and is on that and keeps us on the straight and narrow. I can tell you that after that D in third grade spelling, for the rest of my pre-college career, my grades were A's and B's. little aside, not for nothing, something for parents and grandparents to ponder. 
If you want to raise children who have an experiential basis for understanding the fear of the Lord, set expectations and enforce them. The mercy of God is not that he looks sin or lets disobedience slide. Do not think that slackness in parenting or grandparenting demonstrates mercy. It does not. The mercy of God is that he poured out his punishment on another and not on you. He never relaxes his standard of holiness. Do not imagine that letting sin go unpunished in your home will somehow demonstrate God's grace. Let a little fear bring wisdom to your children. Do not make the mistake of saying that all obedience must always be motivated by love. What did God say to Moses in our Old Testament reading? Oh, that these people would fear me and keep my commandments. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and a fear of parental displeasure can be a great place to teach the fear of the Lord. Anyway, back to our Hebrews text. Back to the question, should I live in fear? Should you live in fear? Yes, the fear of hell, the fear of God's wrath against sinners is meant here in Hebrews to deter apostasy. And so he wants his audience to live in some measure of fear, but only in as much as they are tempted to walk away from the faith. In other words, there is to be fear and non-fear together at the same time in the believer. For those who believe, for those who live in Christ by faith, our author has already encouraged us to enter boldly the very presence of God and to do so fearlessly. I'll tell you what, on my next report card, I had an A in spelling. Did I bring that one home in fear? No, I burst into the house with joy and exuberance. I couldn't wait to show it off. I had nothing to fear because I was in right standing with the expectations, just as those who are in Christ have been made perfect for all time. We have nothing to fear, and yet we must know that fear precisely so that when our faith wanes and doubts overwhelm us, we don't cross into apostasy and abandon the faith. I do not live in a constant fear of drowning, but I fear drowning. And when I come to the railing at Niagara, that fear keeps me safe. In the same way, we do not live in fear of God, yet that fear should be there to keep us safe, to keep us from falling into the hands of the living God. The fear of the Lord is not mere reverent awe. It is fear. It is dread. It is horror. Jesus himself warned us that we should fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's not awe. That's terror. We must be very afraid of God. It must be a part of our Christian life and our walk before the Almighty. But neither should we live in fear if we are in Christ. Without knowing the fear of the Lord and the hell he will bring to those who ignore him, or worse yet, turn away from him, we are at risk of jumping off the edge of Christian doubt and into the peril below. But with that fear in our lives, we don't live paralyzed or overwhelmed. No, we appreciate the salvation Christ bestows. We love the price he paid, and we live joyous, bold lives in God's presence. 
Do not live in fear, but do not imagine navigating this life without a fear of the Lord. Because of the fear, you know you need the sacrifice of Christ. And because of the sacrifice of Christ, you know you needn't fear. Let's pray. Lord, this is a difficult subject. It is a hard thing for us to imagine both fear and non-fear residing in us simultaneously. And yet, Lord, we see that your inspired writer, the author of this book, pleads with Christians, warns them about the punishment that awaits those who turn away from the church and abandon Christ. And he wants them in fear to remain in faith. And in faith to boldly and fearlessly live in the presence of you. Lord, we ask for this tension in our own lives, that we would know the fear of the Lord so that we would know Jesus Christ, so that we would know great joy. And when our faith is weak, when doubts overwhelm us, when we approach the edge and think about jumping out of the faith, remind us of what awaits such a person. Your anger, your wrath, your eternal hell. And let that keep us safe within Christ. We pray this in his beautiful name. Amen.